So before I get started, uh, this, this is a heavy week um, for us as humans who live on this world. Uh, I, as I was thinking about it, I was trying to work what happened in Paris into my sermon tonight and realized that that would just feel forced and isn't, uh, probably wouldn't be the best way to do it. And instead, I want to talk about it just a little bit and then spend some time praying uh, briefly. Um, but before I do that, before I talk about Paris, I want to talk about this other thing that's going on right now. Um, Todd Nahisi Coates, some of you had to go for classes and you came here afterwards. He is a, uh, a journalist, a well-respected journalist, probably one of the preeminent speakers on race currently in the U.S. And he's speaking, doing Q&A right now in Waite Chapel. Um, and this brings up a, a question for us as Christians is how do we engage with uh, the realities of racial injustice that still haunt us in America today? And seeing that... For the most part, this is a white group of folks that are in here, not everyone. Um, but this, this raises questions for us, and we don't necessarily always know how to navigate these things. If y'all are interested in having a conversation about race and Christianity and what that means for us and the way that we love our neighbors with the complex racial history we have in this country, please email me or come talk to me. I've talked with pastors in the area about setting something up so that we can begin to have a conversation about this together. So if you're interested, um, please let me know um, another time. So, uh, briefly talk about what's happened in Paris. Um, when these events happen, we, we have to hold two tensions, two truths in tension. Um, Romans 12 tells us, Romans is a book in the New Testament, in the 12th chapter it tells us um, that we are to hate what is evil. Right? We're to hate what is evil, and at the same time, um, we're called to love our enemies. We're to hate what is evil and to love our enemies. And that's the tension that we, um, who call ourselves Christians, um, have to walk into this sort of stuff with. Right? Right? We, um, it is good for us to hate the evil that is being perpetrated by ISIS and other terrorist groups. But at the same time as Christians, we're called to walk into those things with love, knowing that we are to love our enemies. Um, and we know that evil... Um, is only truly and fully eradicated by love. And we see this clearly um, on the cross, that that is what God has done through Jesus on the cross, that he has, he has taken on the real evil of this world in of himself, um, in his love. So I want to pray um, for this, um, and then we'll get started with the rest of the things. Uh, Father in heaven, um, our hearts are grieved, um, but they're also numb because uh, we face a barrage of information and we also have so much going on in our own lives. But we um, ask that you would um, help us to grieve uh, the loss of life, the horrible, horrible tragedy of uh, the terrorist attacks this weekend. Um, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be with your church in Paris and strengthen your people there, that they would be your hands and feet. Um, we pray for your church globally that uh, you would move on us by your spirit, that we would be hospitable uh, to those uh, whom we are afraid of. Um, and Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come quickly and return and put an end um, to evil as it hurts um, and grieves us so much. Thank you that uh, your word makes it so clear that it grieves no one more than it grieves you. We thank you that your heart is big enough to hold all the sorrows. Um, that we face. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book, The Life of Pi, if you haven't read it or seen the movie, um, the narrator Pi is a young man who grows up as a zookeeper's son in India. 
And one day, while his family's on vacation in Munar, India, Pai, who's a Hindu, he wanders into a Christian church and meets a priest named Father Martin. And Pai and Father Martin have tea and biscuits together. And Pai asks asks the priest a great question. He says, what is Christianity? And Father Martin replies by telling Pai the story of Christianity, by telling him the gospel. How Jesus was stripped, naked, whipped, mocked, dragged through the streets, and to top it off, crucified, and at the hands of mere humans to boot. And Pi responds to this story in disbelief. He even tries to imagine the scene in his own life. Uh, Pi imagines his father telling him how the zoo's lions have slipped out of their cages and killed a bunch of other animals, llamas, camels, birds, etc. And then Pi's father tells Pi, his son, the situation has become intolerable. Something must be done. I have decided the only way the lions can atone for their sins is if I, the father, feed you, the son, to them. Right, this is how the Christian story, the gospel, sounded to this young Hindu. And then he says, what a downright weird story. What a peculiar, peculiar psychology. And so Pi asks Father Martin for another, more satisfying story. He says, surely this religion had more than one story in its bag because religions abound with stories. But Father Martin tells Pi, the stories that came before this story, the gospel story, and there were many, these stories were simply the prologue to the Christians, the prologue to the gospel. Christianity has one story, and to it we come back again and again over and over. And it is story enough for us. Say that again. Father Martin says that Christianity has one story, and to it we come back again and again, over and over. It is story enough for us. And Father Martin is right, that there is one story, and that's enough for us. And the message of, of Colossians, as we've seen as we've read this book together this semester, we've seen that this is one story that's enough for us. Um, but this feels like a hard-to-believe story often for us, right? It um, has a weird, peculiar psychology. But the story of God's grace, of Jesus' life and of his death and of his resurrection for us is enough. And yet, y'all, we, we've been talking about this semester. We try to fill our lives with other stories that, thinking that they'd be more satisfying than this story. Um, but in my own experience, and as I've heard your experiences, it just doesn't work, does it? These other stories that we think just might satisfy us don't offer the satisfaction we long for. This one story is enough, though. And the testimony of the Bible and of the Christian church is that this one story is enough. Everything is about this one story, and that one story is all about Jesus. And Paul concludes his letter to the Colossians by saying, um, because of this, that we're to pray for Jesus' story, we're to speak about Jesus' story, and we're to act out of Jesus' story. So if you'll read with me, it's on your yellow paper, or if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. We're going to finish the book of Colossians, reading Colossians 4, 2 through 18. This is the word of the Lord for us. This is the word of God for us, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Starting in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus 
will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And, to, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we ask now that you would send your spirit to us, that we might hear your word. Um, Lord, would you use my feeble and faltering words, uh, that we might see Jesus um, and understand him more clearly in your grace for us in him. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, so just to start off, I want to say a lot of my content tonight is from a friend of mine, Sid Druin, who does RUF at Davidson, and he's really helped me um, write the sermon tonight. Um, but I want to say the outline again uh, for y'all. It's on, the, it's on your bulletin right there. Uh, we're just to talk about how um, Paul calls us to pray for Jesus' story, to speak about Jesus' story, and finally to act out of Jesus' story. Um, so where are we in Colossians? We have made our way through this entire book. Um, chapter 1, Paul introduces himself, and he uh, gives us uh, a description of the gospel that is the work that God has done in Jesus Christ um, through uh, his death and resurrection, and that that gospel is bearing fruit throughout the world. And then, moving into the second chapter, um, the book turns on the, the sixth verse of the second chapter, where Paul says, Just as you've received Jesus Christ as Lord, so walk in him, um, continued and built up in him, um, in thanksgiving, abounding in thanksgiving just as you've been taught. Um, and he says, what does it look like? And we talked about this. What does it look like to live a life that is centered on the gospel? And then chapter 2 um, um, tells us how not to live, how not to live according to the man-made religions. Chapter 3 then gives us this picture of how to live, to put to death, death, and to put on love um, and how that works out in our relationships. And then here in chapter 4, Paul finishes this positive description of how we're to live in response to God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And in this section, Paul speaks into our doubts about Jesus' story. He speaks about, he actually speaks against our desire for more easy-to-believe normal stories. Um, in our passage tonight, Paul tells us the truth, that everything is about one story, and that one story is all about Jesus. So in the closing words, um, Paul ties three main areas of our lives to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's that we're to pray for Jesus' story, to speak about his story, and to act out of his story. So first, in verse 2, he tells us how to pray. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in thanksgiving. Now there's a lot here, um, but Paul is particularly stressing two things about prayer. 
Percy's saying that prayer is constant. We're to pray without ceasing. There's a commentator named Kent Hughes who says that constant prayer is not so much the speaking of words as the posture of the heart. It's this open-handed posture of the heart um, where we are welcome and open to receive God's grace. Not closed off, doing things on our own, but opened up, receptive to the Spirit. Now, how do we do this? Um, Paul said in in chapter 3 that um, we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Like we, part of this constant prayer is us learning to pray God's word back to him. Second, he says that we're to be watchful in it with thanksgiving. What does it mean to be watchful with thanksgiving? Well, it's, it's us saying to God, show me your faithfulness so that I can thank you for it. It's paying attention to our own lives and seeing that he's actually at work answering our prayers. And as I was thinking about this, I kept being drawn to Romans 8. And in Romans 8, um, Paul also wrote that letter, and he says this. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And he also says in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is an invitation to us to see all of our life, every corner of it, every corner of it as a part of the greater story. This, this great story of God's grace to us. So how do we do this? Um, there's a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's a fantastic book on prayer. Um, and in it, uh, Paul Miller recounts the story of Joseph. Joseph is um, a part of the history of Israel, and his story is told at the end of the book of Genesis. And he says this. He says, Joseph's life was characterized by disappointment. His jealous brothers sell him as a slave for 20 pieces of silver, strip him of his multicolored coat, and use it as evidence that he has died. And just when it looks like his life is making a turn for the better, the wife of his owner, he's a slave at this point, the wife of his owner tears another coat off his back and uses it as evidence that he has tried to rape her. And he ends up in prison alone and forgotten. But look at the story that God is weaving. Twice Joseph loses his coat as he is being humbled. Each time the coat is used as evidence for betrayal. Twice as God elevates him, he is given a new coat by Pharaoh. And you can tell that Joseph realizes God is weaving a story with coats and silver because when his brothers arrive, Joseph gives each of them a coat and silver. He wraps up the story of his life by blessing his brothers with the very items they have stolen from him. Joseph has not given in to bitterness and cynicism. Instead, he discovers the gracious heart of his God. Grace, which he then extends to those who have harmed him. Forgiveness flows from him. And by giving his brother's coats, Joseph has become an artist. He has noticed God's use of themes in his life and extended it. So he ends by saying, when the story doesn't seem to be going your way, when your story doesn't seem to be going your way, ask yourself, what is God doing? Be on the lookout for strange gifts. One way that we can do this, one application for this, um, is to keep a record of your prayers. Prayers asked and prayers answered. Um, My friend Sid tells the story of a friend getting converted through this practice. When we write down our prayer requests and then we see specific prayers answered specifically, this builds faith in and gratitude in us. This is something I'm trying to learn to do. I'm not good at it. I've always known people who've been really good at it. Um, and it's been a joy to be with them because in their life, um, they're able to see, I, I ask this prayer 
Um, and then I saw it answered weeks later, months later, years later. Um, and when we see answered prayer, it gives us opportunity to rejoice with thanksgiving. Keeping a record of our prayers helps us so we can look back on our lives and see how God has actually showed up. How he was involved in our lives the whole time. At times, maybe when we thought he was silent or he was silent um, as we were trying to live the wrong story. But Paul is telling us that as we watch our own lives as we pray, God will give us much to be thankful for. We'll be able to see how little prayers are answered and how they're a part of this big story, this one story that's about Jesus. And when we begin to see how all of life fits into the greater story of God's grace, um, God's self-giving love for us in Jesus Christ, when we see that, when we see how our life fits in this greater story, it will lead us to deeper thanksgiving. Hopefully you're seeing that Paul's being really practical here in this section. Um, He's telling us how to pray, and then he tells us what to pray for. Look at verse 3 and 4. Paul asks us to pray for the, the gospel story to be told and received. He says, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word of God. He's saying that we need to pray because God must work. He alone can open doors to places for the story to be told and open doors in hearts and minds for the story to be received. And verse 5 and 6 encourage us not just to pray, but to tell the gospel story. We're told to speak about Jesus' story. Look at verses 5 and 6. Paul is saying that our lives are to be aimed at making this one story of Jesus known to those who don't yet know him. He tells us how to walk and talk. He tells us to walk in wisdom, and he tells us to talk. He tells us to be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how to answer each person. He doesn't give us a technique, but rather a posture towards those who disagree with us. And in verse 6, he's asking us to be relational, to treat individuals as individuals. He's not calling us to have conversations um, with people. He's calling us to have conversations with people who dis- disagree with us. Um, and as we do them, not just to have the conversations, but to, for them to be good conversations, um, for them to be conversations that are actually delight to the people that we're talking to. And he's saying that that responsibility is on us. This phrase here, seasoned with salt, um, would evoke a world of of images for the first century audience. It, salt was used as a preservative for meats, and as people rubbed it into the meat, it would both extract the moisture out of the meat, and it would also preserve the meat from decay, and it would enhance the flavor of the meat. So when Paul is saying that our conversation is to be seasoned with salt, then he's saying that that's to take place when we speak with one another and when we speak with people who are outside the community of faith. That our, our conversation should be such that um, it preserves the conversation from decay. Um, that it actually um, extracts beauty and flavor from the people that we're with. When we talk with those we disagree, with whom we disagree, God is calling us to do so in a way that this conversation would then be a gift to the people we're speaking with. In verse 6, uh, the word answer implies that we're to have talks that are grounded in listening. We need to listen to others before we speak. When I was in college, I was involved with a, a high school ministry, and we went on a ski trip um, every winter. And uh, New Year's Eve ski trip, and uh, we were in Colorado, and I really had this desire to make an impact in high school students' lives. And I really wanted to tell these um, Christian, non-Christian kids uh, everything I knew about Jesus and try to argue with them, try to have some sort of dialogue where I would argue people into Christianity. Um, and believe it or not, people were not really receptive to that. Um, and there was a man there, there was a leader there, a guy named Drew, um, 
And I'd watch as students would go to him and unload their lives with him. And they were willing. They were just absolutely willing to hear the gospel from him. So I'm on a ski lift with Drew, and we're going up, and I asked him, how do you do it? How do you get people to tell you about their lives? And how do you get them to want to hear the gospel from you? How do you get them to want to hear about Jesus from you? And then Drew told me about a man named Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer was a great thinker and theologian and writer of the 20th century. Um, And he said this. He said, if I have an hour to share the gospel with someone, I will listen to them for 55 minutes and speak for maybe five. If I have an hour to share the gospel with someone, I'll listen to them for 55 minutes and speak for maybe five. See, I wanted a technique, but what Drew gave me and what Paul gives us here is that we are to speak about Jesus' story to answer people. That it would be seasoned with salt. Um, that our speech would always be gracious. And this adjective gracious points to the power of the story that shapes how we pray and how um, we talk and how we act. Um, It's this word grace. And what is grace? Um, Grace is God's unearned favor towards you. And grace is the bedrock and the bookends of Colossians. It's the first word that Paul speaks or writes in the first chapter, and it's the last word. It's in um, verse 18. It's all grace. And what grace does is grace secures God's promises for us, and grace sets us free. It secures God's promises for us. The Bible is filled with promises. The Old Testament is this progressive unfolding of God's promises for his people. The promise that God would destroy death and reconcile us to himself and to one another. And grace is God securing these promises for us in Jesus Christ. Grace is God's yes to you. In Jesus. God, grace secures God's promises for us and it sets us free. Grace is Jesus taking my death, what I deserve because of my sin on the cross, and giving me his life, his perfect obedience to his Father because he loves me. Another way of saying this is that grace is Jesus taking my wrongs and me getting his rights. Grace is not about being good at being good, it's not about achieving anything, it's about receiving, it's about trusting him in the work that he has done. And this last section of this letter, verses 7 through 17, shows us the transforming power of grace in real lives just like ours. And it shows the power of this one story of Jesus. So what does grace look like in action? Well, each of the names that Paul lists in this this final section is a story. It's a story of a person um, who has been moved and transformed by God's grace. Um, And I want to focus on just one. Um, We'd be here for a long time if we did all of them. Just one. Look at verse 10. Paul writes, Mark the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. That's that's boring enough. Paul's saying, okay, be sure to host Mark along with a dozen other people. All right, check. Um, But Mark's relationship to Paul is anything but boring. Acts 13 tells the story of Mark ditching Paul. Paul and Barnabas and Mark were on a missionary journey together, and Mark ditches them in the middle of their journey, and he leaves them out to dry. And we're not told why Mark leaves, but the discussion in Acts 15 implies that he did not leave for a very good reason. He's probably homesick. He's probably scared. He's probably doubting. Um, Perhaps he was offended when he saw how gracious God was being to foreigners and outsiders. And he used those excuses to evacuate his own life, his own life, leaving Paul and Barnabas out to dry, severing their relationship. 
And at the end of Acts 15, we see that Paul was hurt so deeply by Mark's leaving that when Barnabas suggests that they bring Mark along, Paul and Barnabas get in a huge fight and they go separate ways. Mark ran away from his friends Paul and Barnabas and from God's mission. But the story of God's grace is that God was gracious to him and ran after him. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us the details of how this happened, but we know that God restored Mark to himself through his grace. You see, when we run away from God, he runs towards us faster. When we hide, he seeks. What God did with Mark is exactly what he will do with you if you believe in him. Jesus chases after you in your paralyzing stress over these last few weeks of school. Jesus chases after you when you've burned every bridge to every friend here at Wake Forest. Jesus chases after you when you feel like cutting or masturbating or eating a whole gallon of ice cream in one sitting. Jesus chases after you when you don't remember what happened last night again. And Jesus chases after you and me when the Christian life feels too hard and we're scared that everyone's going to find out that we're really bad at friendships and we're really bad at church. And this is the Jesus who chases after and heals Mark. And by God's grace, this is the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He was restored by God's grace and used powerfully for that story of that gospel going forth into the world. And what verse 10 shows us is that by God's grace, Paul and Mark were reconciled. And this isn't just about Mark, it's also about Paul. Paul, who Mark abandoned and hurt so badly, asked the Colossians to throw him a big party when he arrives. The same Paul who told Barnabas to get lost because of Mark has a change of heart. Paul refused to write Mark off. He refused to count him dead. Um, He refused to relate to him in any terms other than mercy and forgiveness. Y'all, this is a sign of grace at work that Paul sees his own failures and understands that Jesus throws him a welcome home party every single time. Do we do this for the people in our life? Are we giving them the benefit of the doubt over and over again? Or do we make people relive our wounds? Are we celebrating friends and parents and roommates who apologize? I'm asking not just you. I'm asking me those questions as well. So back to the life of Pi. So when Pi hears Father Martin tell him that one story is enough, he immediately launches into three questions, three accusatory questions. First, Paul says aloud, That a God should put up with adversity, I understand. But humiliation? Death? I can't imagine. Why would God wish that taint and stench of death upon himself? Why make dirty what is beautiful, spoil what is perfect? And Father Martin answered, love. Pi says aloud again, this son is a God on too human a scale. That's what. His miracles are card tricks. His best transportation is a regular old donkey. He died in three hours with moans and gasps and laments. What kind of God is that? What is there to inspire in this son? Father Martin answered again, love. Pi, in a final outburst, asks Father Martin, and this son appears only once long ago, far away? among an obscure tribe in a backwater of West Asia on the confines of a long-vanished empire? This is God, ungenerous and unfair. 
What could justify such divine stinginess? And Father Martin again and finally answers, love. Love is Jesus taking on humiliation and death for his people. Love is Jesus meeting us where we're hiding God on too human a scale. And love is Jesus living a single human life once long ago and far away. So that by his grace and our faith, we get his rights and he gets our wrongs on a cross. You know, the answer to life, the answer to how we are to live, whether praying or speaking or acting, the answer is always and forever, Jesus' love. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that the testimony of the book of Colossians is one note, and that is the note of your grace. Your overwhelming love for this world, so much so that you gave your own life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us. Um, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would teach us, lead us to pray and to walk, to talk and to act in response to this, knowing um, that you are the God of all grace forever and ever. Amen.